Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, February 7th, 2019 which means that in 13 days I'll be 72 years old. If my voice breaks, it's because of a head cold or allergies. I don't know which. It's not because of emotion. I save that for the courtroom. Um, Tonight we talk about how the banks are getting away with it and what we might be able to do to force them to actually prove their case instead of having it presumed to be valid. People keep saying to me, Hasn't anyone heard of innocent until proven guilty? It isn't guilty until proven innocent. That actually misses the point. Because in most cases, but not all, I know homeowners have been foreclosed to a current on the mortgage, even as the pretenders had it. But in most cases, the homeowner has stopped making payments. It's the bank's that say that the inquiry should stop there. All we have to know is whether the homeowner stopped making payments. We say, no, who are you to be collecting from this owner, homeowner? The question is whether he or she should have ever been making payments to the parties claiming the right to collect. In just a moment... Attorney Russ Baldwin from Oregon will join me, Charles Marshall, attorney in California, and Bill Padalo, private investigator, for a panel discussion on the issue of who must prove what in foreclosure litigation, and I especially want to make sure we have time for Bill to talk about some of his recent uh, uh, diggings uh, on whether asset-backed securities are backed by any assets. Specifically, we're going to be talking about when banks rely on assignments or endorsements that include a reference to an external document. In other words, it's not attached, but there's an oblique reference, and the document is neither identified nor attached, why should such an instrument enjoy presumptions arising traditionally from a facially valid document or a negotiable instrument? I say there should be no such presumptions. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, and this show is specially brought to you because of 
donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. I want to extend a personal note of appreciation for all those who are making regular contributions to us. It makes a big difference in our ability to field incoming inquiries. And for those of you who are not contributors, you know the drill. We ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230. Pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows have value, which we do without payment or other, any other support, if that has value to you, then chip in. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. <coughs> Pardon me. Charles Marshall is co-host tonight. Charles is a practicing attorney in the state of California. Bill Padalo is a regular commentator on this show. He's, he's been a private investigator for a long time and also a long time now involved with ferreting out little-known facts behind the farce we call securitization. Welcome, Charles and Bill. Good to be here. Great to be on. Russell Baldwin rejoins us tonight. He's a practicing licensed attorney in Lincoln City, Oregon. He has his own insights as to foreclosure litigation, and he has his own style in the courtroom, which I just learned immediately prior to broadcast, which which <laughs> I, I like. And we, we welcome his fresh points of view. In 2011, he got the largest jury verdict of nearly $3.4 million and an award of $450,000 in attorney's fees. He has wide experience in civil litigation and in city government, having been the interim city attorney. He was admitted to practice law 30 years ago. His email is baldwin underlined A-T-T-Y, for attorney, at embarkmail.com. Welcome, Russ Baldwin. Thank you. So we're dealing with an instrument that does not contain basic elements of a negotiable instrument, like the identification and authority of the, of the party stated. I'm specifically referring to not the original deed of trust or, or the original mortgage, but assignment mm-hmm. of the uh, encumbrance or endorsements of the note. In most cases, you'll see, for example, Aquin as attorney in fact. It doesn't say Aquin as attorney in fact under that certain power of attorney dated the fourth day of July, 1776, and recorded at OR book and page blah, 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 or registered on xyz.gov. It simply says Aquin as attorney in fact. They're saying, go prove we're not the attorney in fact. We say we're the attorney in fact, and since this is the face of a common instrument, that means we, what we say is true, even if it isn't, until you prove that it's not. Which puts the burden squarely on a homeowner who has no access to the documents required in order to prove or disprove the uh, supposition 
that Aquin is acting as attorney in fact for a party that has that is the owner of the debt or is authorized by virtue of still another document to act as a representative of the owner of the debt. If I'm correct, then the instrument is not facially valid. If in order to identify the parties, you need to go externally to parole or extrinsic evidence to determine the identity of, of the parties that are here and the authority to uh, to appear. The, the instrument may not be facially valid, but the terms could still be proven. But the burden of proving the agreement consideration offer acceptance would be on the parties seeking enforcement. They would not get a free ride. No legal presumptions applied. They would be required to produce proof of the owner of the debt, the owner of the instrument, and the owner of the mortgage. Remember that mortgages and deeds of trust are never negotiable instruments. Also remember, there's no such thing as a transfer of the deed of trust or mortgage when there's no transfer of the debt. That's under Article 9, UCC. Okay, Russ, what are your thoughts on these pearls of wisdom? <laughs> well, it's easy as just to say I agree with everything that you said, <laughs> and that's generally true. Um, here in Oregon, we have a statute that lists all of the evidentiary presumptions that that would apply, and I, I quickly looked, and I don't see anything there about negotiable instruments. And, of course, that only applies to the state of Oregon. Where Where I kind of come in on this, I agree with you that if you've, you've got an assignment and it's referring to ex, you know, extrinsic documents, that should be subject to attack. Otherwise, if there were a presumption that would apply to say that the person defending against that assignment, that person would have to, I think, prove a negative. And um, that's, um, that's the equivalent of proving that there are no ghosts, right? <laughs> Very difficult I, to do. Oh, that, that's so, exactly right. It's, good, it's a good choice of words because what I have said to many clients is you're dealing with a ghost. Right. And it takes many different shapes as it pleases. Um, and, right. And part of, part of the mechanism of that is in the presumptions that apply Back in 2007, I had a telephone call with an attorney. I won't use his name. Uh, but he was one of the master people behind the securitization thing. And we had a very frank discussion. And he basically laid it out. He said, look, we've got the presumption. The instrument is facially valid. It's a common instrument. It's described by statute. And we're the holder. We don't have to own the, the debt in order to force the note. And the, the leap he was making is he said, because of that, they're going to assume that we also own uh, we also own the debt and that a transfer of the note is a transfer of the debt. I told him, I don't see how that's going to fly. He was right. I was wrong. 
So, Charles, what are your thoughts on this? <clears throat> the thing that strikes me the most is the role that power of attorney uh, angles play out in California litigation. And I don't know if there are numberless, but there are probably hundreds, possibly thousands of cases, even from the plaintiff's side where the plaintiff is the borrower here in California, going back 10 years, where one of the bases for chain of assignment issues and essentially even at the front end, the, the, def, the institutional defendants not even having standing to defend their position because they didn't have proper documents that they could present in court. Uh, the power of attorneys that are referenced and frankly uh, alluded to and in and, and, and point of fact in many of these cases in other words, they're, they're not presented uh, on any kind of evidentiary basis. They're not attached as an exhibit oftentimes in the initial pleadings of the institutional defendants. And when the institutional players do, as they occasionally will, file a uh, judicial foreclosure in California, these power of attorneys are rarely attached then as well. And when you look behind the face, or in this case, you look, look behind the absence of the facially available documents, half less, be able to analyze whether they're valid or not. You find that the power of attorneys are defunct on their face, that the enabling institutional people attached to those power of attorneys themselves were not legally able to contract on the day of the assignment for generally a half dozen reasons. I mean, I have a case on appeal now where I've been screaming up and down about this type of power of attorney issue for several years now at the lower level, now on appeal. <clears throat> it looks like, based on a recently filed respondent's brief, that this case at least is getting traction at the appellate level in California. And I think this court not saying they're going to side with me. That's always a tall order. However, the, the appellate pleading is least, at least it's moving in the direction where that could happen. And I think for borrowers in California, particularly when they're on the plaintiff's side in a, uh, a foreclosure lawsuit action, the fewer documents they attach themselves, we've talked about this many times, the less the other side can, can claim a request for judicial notice, and that opens up this door even wider so that they can more readily challenge power of attorney scenarios. I might say that's the only scenario where they could do it, but the power of attorney aspect lines up perfectly with, uh, with what you've laid out here, uh, Neil, and you've um, amplified Russ. So... One of the points that I'm emphasizing here is the power of attorney. Recently had a case, well, it's continuing in several respects, where Aquin did come in with a power of attorney. Now, mind you, they never produced the original, but forget that for a second. They said... The Aquin representative said that this was the basis upon which Aquin was representing the 
plaintiff U.S. Bank for the Blobity Block Trust. I said, great, let's see it. Lo and behold, it's a grant from Chase Bank, who had nothing to do with the case. It's a fabricated document prepared for trial, and even if somebody from Chase had signed it, it wouldn't make any difference. This is why the banks require proof that the power of attorney exists, that it's still in force because powers of attorney can automatically terminate based upon extrinsic events, and why I think that a document which contains a reference to a power of attorney that is undated and unlocatable by reference in the document and unattached, I think the document is not facially valid, and I think that if it's not facially valid, it's not entitled to legal presumptions, and they have to prove that case. <coughs> so, while I still have a voice left, um, Bill, you've done some digging and appear to have come up with the same conclusion I did that mortgage-backed securities are not backed by mortgages. And they may not be securities, or they're illegally and fraudulently issued securities. If you and I are right, that then this would explain in full why the banks don't simply lay their cards on the table and say, okay, here's the check or wire transfer. We, we own the debt. We face the risk of loss. They stop paying. We're going to be injured by their non-payment. And that's the end of the case. Most of the defenses that homeowners raise now would be toast. The only way they can, can and do prevail is by steamrolling judges into thinking that they have facially valid documents. If judges can be given pause to look at the documents, the documents upon which the pretenders are relying, and really read the document closely, I think things would change forever. Bill, talk about your your investigation on that. Well, sure. Um, you know, it kind of goes to the, the heart of the facial validity of these assignments and that that mention or reference the word certificate holders in the trust name or in the plaintiff name if it's a judicial proceeding. They come in and uh, they'll say XYZ trust on behalf of the certificate holders of, you know, you name a trust. And that kind of opens the door to, you know, all right, uh, you claim to represent these investor certificate holders. First of all, who are they? Um, again, it's fighting a ghost. You've deposed uh, U.S. Bank corporate trust uh, officers, uh, for example, and all the response is the same. Not, the trustees themselves have no idea of who the investors or the certificate holders are that they represent, and they have no idea or any way of finding out who they are. Uh, they just simply say, you know, go figure it out. I don't know, contact the DTC or whatever if you want to find out. Well, 
uh, we've talked in other uh, shows and everything, and we posted on your blog about the Kashmir case out of Washington State where uh, the Supreme Court came back and ruled that the certificate holders, uh, investors, had no recourse against the borrowers or the underlying assets. And we've had all these cases uh, to suggest that the securities underlying these trusts are not asset-backed at all. Well, it's kind of funny how the evidence of these assets not being backed by the uh, security instruments, mortgages and deeds, is really right under our noses all along. If you look at any of the filings in the SEC for any issuing entity trust, and uh, it's, it appears from my research uh, that this is pretty much universal across the board with every trust I've looked at. If the very first thing that they did when they set up the uh, uh, the alleged trust and filed their prospectuses and the PSAs and whatnot is shortly after they file a 10K for the issuing entity. And then the first thing do, you look at in the first page or two of the 10K they disclose that none of these certificates uh, or the securities um, are going to be registered with any um, uh, exchange or any of that. So they're, cert- they're basically, uh, it's private, they're not going to be registered, you can't trace who those holders are going to be. The next thing that they have done, and, and people have been emailing me for years saying, you know, why do the, all of these trusts stop reporting immediately after by filing uh, under Section 15D, a suspension of duty to file reports under the Securities and Exchange Act? And people would ask, does that mean that the trust no longer exists and uh, that it's not active? I mean, there's, it's, there's been a lot of confusion around that. <clears throat> well, if you look at the 15D filings by any number of these trusts, they have to check mark a box uh, in that form stating uh, the reasons for terminating or suspending their duty to file reports. And the check box that they uh, select in, in all these cases is under Rule 12H-3B1I. And when you look at the definition of the rule of which they're checkmarking that box to take exemption from terminating any filing, the only way they can check that box is if the securities that they're no longer going to report on are not asset-backed. So it's essentially an admission right there in the SEC filings that uh, these certificates, whoever has them, uh, are certainly not asset-backed securities. Now, you know, we all know, and people have been screaming for years that the IRS and the government enforcement agencies have not been enforcing the violations of remix status, and and that this has been a widespread cover up, and uh, nobody's you know uh, paying any attention to it, and so on and so forth. But I guess my point on on a lot of this is just because certain laws, uh, I mean, this is hard evidence, but just because certain laws are not being enforced doesn't necessarily mean that violation that the violations are not illegal. And I think there's uh, enough evidence now, especially based on their own admissions, at least on a case-by-case, to start raising this argument, because I, I haven't seen it raised very often, where they're coming in saying that the certificate holders are owed this money, and yet they can't identify who they are, and by the admissions filed in the SEC, those 
those certificates are non-asset backed. And the certificates, the indenture promises a payment that in essence is from the investment bank. It's not from any homeowner who's a borrower. Um, in fact, no principal is promised to the certificate holder, uh, and the formula uh, upon which they're going to be paid is based on an internal formula. The problem, as I see it, with with what you're saying, uh, uh, that you're right as to your findings, um, I, I, I think what it means is that Okay, we know that the so-called investors don't hold an interest in the debt, note, or mortgage. And now the question is, does the trust own the debt? And all evidence suggests that there's no transaction in existence in which somebody purchased a loan and entrusted it to U.S. Bank as trustee to administer in, the, in, in a trust, uh, or that the or that U.S. Bank purchased the loan as trustee for this alleged trust. In fact, everything that I'm seeing indicates the 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 trust name is merely a fictitious name being used by various parties, but mostly by the investment bank, who never shows up on any of the documents. So, Russ, you've You've heard us blab about this now. Oregon seems to be a little different. How does it play out in Oregon? Well, I, I can't say that um, Oregon is is different with with what we've been about. Um, I, I I really like uh, Bill's points about the unidentifiable certificate holders. Um, uh, that's just um, my and my mind is still kind of kind of spinning on on that one um but yeah especially really, when I, especially when the, the the case is say u.s bank uh, as trustee on behalf of the holders of the certificates right and so i guess you know where the as a practicing lawyer, what I'm always when I when I find new evidence or you know or an interesting legal argument in my mind, I'm try, I'm always trying to figure out okay, what bucket does that go in? Where is this going to be something that can be brought up by motion before trial, or is this the kind of thing that I would just want to you know keep in my briefcase and, and pull these gremlins out <laughs> when? <laughs> <laughs> when the, the the bank can't you know figure out something else to do you know and and make fun of the what's going on at that time and you know that's that's where tri- trial strategy comes into play right but you know for these exactly. for these presumptions and attacking um, assignments um, I, I I think the thing to do is to probably bring it to the court's attention early. Um, um, to try to avoid trial, um, but um, I would I would tell homeowners don't be surprised if there's a lot if you get a lot of judicial reluctance to right. um, <laughs> following following you down that path because quite frankly there are very few judges that want to believe that our 
you know, mortgage system, our secure transaction system throughout the country is completely broken. But I believe it is. Yeah, I believe it is, too. And uh, thank you for that insight. Uh, Russ Baldwin from Oregon. Charles Marshall from California. And Bill Padalo, who you located in Washington, right? Actually, uh, Oregon uh, private investigator, but I'm stationed in Montana. Montana. Okay, I had that screwed up. Um, there you have it. So thank you guys for joining us on the show and uh, sharing your, your vision and your insights. And hopefully everybody will be a little bit better off than they were before the show. Thanks for your contribution. Good night. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.